30 seconds and counting. Hello and welcome to the High Altitude Adventures podcast. This is episode 5, Commercial Suborbital Space Flights. My name is Mikhail, and my guest today is Ron Rossano, who will soon fly to space twice. Hi, Ron. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Mikhail. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about commercial space flight with you. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ron, I know that uh, one of your projects is a summary of uh, suborbital flights. Uh, you have a website which is called suborbitalflightjournal.com, which is very interesting. And for me, you're one of the most knowledgeable people about suborbital flights. Uh, let's first talk about this in general. What is that? What's a suborbital flight? Oh, thanks. Yeah, th thanks. I'm glad, I'm glad you're enjoying the site. Uh, so uh, a suborbital flight is different from going to orbit in that you're only going far enough off the surface of the planet to be in space for a short period of time and then back down and not in, in doing a full orbit uh, of Earth. So uh, it's much actually... It, it, you have a beautiful view, you're in the vacuum of space there, but it takes much less energy to get uh, into space on a suborbital flight. You're only traveling about 4,000 kilometers per hour compared to having to accelerate yourself up to 28,000 miles an hour, or 20,000 kilometers per hour to reach orbit. So it's a basically a very high hop. You go very, very high yep. and then you come down. Yep. And exactly. on, on your website, you list all, all these historic flights. And uh, remind me, when did we have, uh, we humans had the first suborbital flight? What, was it Alan Shepard? Or there were yes. Uh, yeah, Alan Shepard in, in 1961 was the first uh, human to, to go on a, a strictly suborbital flight. That was the beginning of the U.S. space program. I've been interested in space history uh, all my life, really. And uh, as we're reaching this new era of commercial space flights, commercial suborbital flights, uh, I thought it'd be great to have one uh, location that summarizes all those flights. And that's why I started uh, the Suborbital Flight Journal. And that lists all the suborbital flights humans have been on uh, since 1961, when Alan Shepard had his first flight. And that's a good segue to the current status, current situation. Now we have several companies who offer this service commercially. Uh, what are they? So there's two companies now operating uh, commercial suborbital flights, Virgin Galactic. You may, you may have seen them in the headlines recently. They just flew uh, their first uh, private passengers last week. And also Blue Origin, who's had, I think, about six flights uh, with... Uh, so in total between the two of those, there's been 50 commercial suborbital astronauts since uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin started their flights uh, in you know, 19, uh, I see 2018 was the first Virgin Galactic space flight. And if we look forward five, let's say three, five years, we have several projects which are hatching, which are possible, like Starship uh, may have a suborbital hops and some more, right? Yeah, SpaceX is, is testing Starship and they expect to have uh, their uh, second test flights where the next month or two, it looks like. Um, I haven't seen them mention suborbital specifically, but it certainly would fit uh, in the capabilities of, of what Starship is doing, and that really, really could provide access to, you know, instead of you know three or four, five, six people at a time, you know, maybe even up to a hundred on a single flight. 
And there are also several companies uh, which probably a bit early in their development stage, uh, several in Europe, uh, several in North America, who are talking about possible suborbital trips, but they are a bit early, early in the stage. And I know there is a Chinese company which is copy, copying Blue Origin model again. <coughs> Let's see what happens there. But today there are two current active ones, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. Now, uh, spilling the beans. So you have both of them booked, you may go, or you will go on both of them, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really envious, jealous, absolutely. Uh, fair play. Uh, <laughs> All the best to you in this flight. <laughs> thanks. Now, let's say, um, speaking about those flights, since you, you're preparing yourself to fly on both, and you know pretty well, I assume, the whole sequence of events which will happen and also you track same as me we watch all these flights every time so let's talk about the sequence of events happening on the day of the flight so hypothetical blue origin flight hypothetical virgin galactic flight what people who will book or who already booked can expect on the day of the flight what will be what will be happening so that's a i think for, well for both for both carriers both providers uh it's a very early wake up uh, they will both uh, fly early in the morning. That's when the air is calmest, uh, best conditions uh, for flying. And uh, you know, you know uh, it's I can only I can only guess really a little bit. You know, not having done it, but um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, unsettledness in your stomach. There's a lot of excitement. There's you know, it's a you know, for some people, it's a lifetime of of preparation and thinking of this. Um, for the Blue Origin flight, uh, yeah, though it'll be a, like a, a wake up before dawn, get dressed in your suit, have some breakfast. Um, right around sunrise, soon after, uh, <clears throat> they'll drive you out to the launch pad and you climb the stairs at the launch pad, about 70 feet, seven flights, and wait uh, for a few short minutes in, uh, in a safe room uh, while a rocket is going through its final verifications. And then um, <clears throat> six passengers load in the capsule. And depending on uh, how smoothly the countdown goes, uh, you might be in the capsule for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Um, on one of the flights, NS-19, uh, the crew uh, took about 37 minutes from entering the capsule, waiting, flying into space. The whole flight on Blue Origin is, is about 10 and a half minutes, landing, uh, opening the hatch and exiting the capsule. So they were 37 minutes in the capsule from start to finish. And then, you know, you're off uh, for the rest of your day and you're done really with the flight by, you know, 9 a.m. And for people who may have no idea about this project, maybe this is the first time they, they hear about this. Well, they are welcome to go to the Blue Origin website, New Shepard, that's the name of the of the rocket. Uh, yes. flying this. But the capsule is... Uh, will will host six people. I, I assume it weighs several tons, and it has huge windows, huge tall windows, and each uh, yeah. passenger sits next to a huge tall window, and uh, yeah. that is the real beauty of, of this project because you can see Earth in its splendor through the whole thing, and uh, yeah. the the weightlessness bit lasts three four minutes. That's my understanding. Yeah, that's correct. On on both on, on both Galactic and Blue about. Three minutes, three and a half minutes of weightlessness. All right, now Virgin Galactic. So, what is there? What is, what is the sequence? The, you know, very similar. Early wake up, light breakfast. I think um, 
a lot of maybe some nervousness, some excitement, some waiting for the thrill to happen. Um, and uh, though the, the crews for Galactic have gone out to, to the spacecraft at, you know, 6.30, a.m., 7, maybe 7.30. Um, and very, it's a very different system with Virgin Galactic. The, it's a spaceship that's on, uh, carried beneath a, a carrier plane. And the carrier plane takes about 40, 45 minutes to fly up to a release altitude. And they release the spaceship. Uh, spaceship fires a rocket. And the rocket burns for about a minute. And uh, at the end of the rocket burn, the spaceship coasts up into space uh, and then comes back down. And, and as it enters the atmosphere, uh, the spaceship flies like a glider and it glides back to the same runway from which it took off. The whole sure. experience for Virgin Galactic takes longer than for Blue Origin. Yes. Yeah. About an hour and a quarter or so off, that you're off the ground. Yeah. So the capsule, uh, well, the, the, now we call it space plane. The Virgin Galactic space plane holds two pilots and four uh, passengers. One of these passengers is usually a Virgin Galactic representative, The what they call them, uh, experience manager, I forgot the name. Uh, astronaut, yeah, astronaut trainer. Astronaut and yeah, Galactic has said that for the first maybe five or six, seven flights that they'll fly uh one of their own staff, uh, an astronaut trainer with three passengers just to, you know, help make sure that everything goes uh, as planned. But after that, they plan to fly four passengers uh, in the spaceship. And in the not so distant future, Virgin Galactic is planning to have uh, Delta class um, rocket planes, which will carry six passengers. That's several years in the future. Exactly. Yes. So they're, 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 they're building, uh, in planning, I think around 2026 to start with, uh, uh, the Delta class. And that will be, you know, fleet, probably two, three spaceships, uh, in the first year flying along with the current one spaceship unity. So differences and similarities, similarities, both projects will take you on a suborbital flight. So it means they go up and down, um, Blue Origin will cross 100 kilometers line, Virgin Galactic uh, between 80 and 90. I think the last flight was 88 kilometers uh, altitude. Yeah. Uh, Blue Origin goes up and down. The whole flight is 13, 14 minutes, four minutes in weightlessness. Virgin Galactic, it's hour and a half, two hours total, same four minutes in weightlessness, uh, slightly lower. And um, less passengers, three passengers were Galactic, six passengers blue origin correct for yeah. you you will fly on both why, why did you choose to go on both why not pick one well um i've been you know, following space travel all my life and i was watching very closely when virgin galactic announced in uh 2004 that they're going to take what was spaceship one then and build a bigger version of spaceship two so i decided to uh buy a ticket with them back in 2010. And, uh, you know, it's been some time. There's about 800 people now with uh, tickets for Galactic. And uh, it still looks that, uh, you know, I'm a, a couple of years, maybe two or three years away from my turn to fly with Galactic. And uh, I had an op opportunity to uh, to get a ticket with Blue. And um, I decided that uh, that was worth doing. You know, it's for me to see the Earth from space would be, you know, the dream of a lifetime. And you know, I'm, I'm thrilled not just for me to be flying into space at some point, but for, you know, hundreds and eventually thousands of people to travel into space and see our planet in the blackness of space and have a realization 
of what our earth is and that we're all on this planet together and need to work together to to make things better you know you don't see borders so much from space and uh all the people that have traveled even suborbital flights have had a transformative experience and talk about uh, their lives changing after that and you know i'm i'm hoping to uh, i've been working for about 10 years i've been working actually since 1995 doing classroom activities with students uh related to space and astronomy and um i've been leading uh, video calls uh, with classrooms to talk about commercial space. And I expect to do that uh, uh, once I finish my uh, flight and uh, inspire children to, uh, to understand space and, and be excited about careers in STEM and STEAM. You know, I think it's important for people to realize that. Well, I assume once Elon Musk has his Starship Earth to Earth suborbital flights, you'll book that too, right? And all, all other ones. <laughs> Oh, it depends. Um, you know, who knows how much it will cost. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm uh, trying to stay in best of health and and uh, be ready if you know if that if that opportunity comes along. Well, Earth from above is beautiful, and uh, I didn't go higher than eighteen thousand feet. Uh, so, any any other unusual, abnormal things you've done in in the past where you saw Earth from above? I know that you did the zero G flights. Uh, what else? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I have done uh, the Zero-G uh, once in the U.S. and once in Bordeaux in France with Air Zero-G. And um, that's recommended training, suggested, not required for preparation for commercial spaceflight. Um, I think it's essential to do because you, your body, once you, your body realizes what those, what that feels like, it enables you to be more open on the real, on the, on the space flight. And you eliminate some of the unknowns. Um, I've also done centrifuge training. There's a facility in uh, near Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, in the U.S. Uh, called NASTAR, N-A-S-T-A-R, where they do uh, centrifuge training. So it's a a capsule that one person sits in with a video screen in, in front of you, and the capsule is spun around on an arm and turned in a way so that you feel the G forces exactly the way you'll feel them during the flight. And that's really helpful to have too. So on the space flight, your body knows what those are, what those feelings are. And there's very, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what those minutes will be like. It's two very different states of mind and states of being going from a rocket, pushing you through the atmosphere at 4,000 kilometers per hour to instantaneous weightlessness and floating in, in a way out a window where you're going to want to be quiet and contemplative and looking at the view uh, out the window. Uh, I've thought a lot about what to do during those moments. I don't plan on, you know, doing somersaults or, or tossing candy. Um, at first, I just want to look at the earth. And then I read a quote from Stephen Hawking, who said that, no, you're, you're going to be out among the universe, among the stars. You should be thinking of what Earth looks like in space and thinking about what's out there in the blackness of space. Uh, so I said, oh, then, oh yeah, I should be you know, looking out there too. Uh, then I read a quote from Dave Scott who walked on the moon with Apollo 15 and he was at an exhibit of uh, photographs of the moon and, and it was asked, see, gee, Dave, some people said the moon looked kind of brown, other people said it looked orange, what do you think? And Scott said, you see what you expect to see you have to open yourself up. So that's 
what I'm thinking now is by ha by doing the weightless uh, experience, by doing the centrifuge training, I'll be best able to just let the experience bring whatever it brings to me. Is it um, a requirement for all potential future astronauts to go through some training before these two flights, uh, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, I don't know, are there any similarities or not? Um, or it's a very, for people who don't want to do the zero-g or G-forces training, it's a really simple mm -hmm. and straightforward training. What do you know about that? Uh, yeah, that's uh, um, interestingly, both companies have you know similar format, about three days of training uh, at the launch site prior to uh prior to flight day so um there's you, yeah it's definitely not required to have have done a weightless flight or have done centrifuge training but uh they're both designed for you know uh, a person of you know generally good health um and good fitness to to experience without a problem you know they've had uh People as young as 18, people as old as 90. You know, you may have seen uh, highlights from William Shatner on Blue Origin. You know, he, he uh, had a profound experience uh, and, you know, didn't need, didn't need to be in particularly, you know, athlete level uh, of health. I don't want to you for you to reveal any secrets but anything you can tell uh, about the training maybe in more details because i heard somewhere that um, you go through some sequence like how to open the hedge how to open the, the door uh, how to buckle up how uh, how to behave in weightlessness basically safety related training so that uh, you're comfortable and do things quickly because the transition from weightlessness to back to g-forces may may happen not instantaneously but rather fast basically to prepare you for that is that correct uh, as far as I know, yeah, I, th I think a, a lot of the training is focused on on safety procedures, uh, communication, what to do in an emergency situation, uh, things like that. You mentioned G-force training. Uh, I think it's about three Gs on both for the acceleration bits. Is it more? Uh, no, that's about right. Three, three and a half. And actually in, with Virgin Galactic, um, because of the way the rocket ship uh, goes from horizontal flight to vertical flight, you experience some G's from head to toe, you know, what they call the Z axis. And uh, there, there are a few little techniques you could do to get through that easily. You don't want to be having all the blood drain from your head. So that's one thing we practice in the centrifuge is that, yeah, you get to see what that feels like. Um, you know, wasn't even close to, to blacking out at all. Speaking about dogs, uh, dogs are true uh, heroes of space travel. And we all know what like... Uh, and some other Russian dogs, but there are many dogs in Soviet Union which went suborbital uh, during the experimental stage of... Uh, uh, I think there are several dozen. I think the total number is about 40. 42 Soviet wow. dogs went to space or suborbital. Most of them suborbital. Well, um, that's why dogs are true heroes of space age. Now, yeah. uh, the question which people always ask, and uh, let's see how much we can discuss that. Pricing. Um, what, yeah. Let's say, let's talk about safe subject first, Virgin Galactic. Uh, I, yeah, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to know how much you paid. So let's talk about how mm -hmm. much people will pay if they book today. So if you were, there, if you were to book today, and actually Virgin Galactic has, has stopped sales as they want to start working through the, uh, the early early flyers, uh, the, when the most recent price has been $450,000 US. And they have said that once uh, they start 
uh, flying with the Delta class, that they'll uh, resume ticket sales and actually expect the price to be higher. So everyone hopes, feels that like in aviation when tickets <laughs> tickets on, a, on an airplane flight were really more of an exclusive thing and uh, not really within reach for a, a lot of people. Uh, the expectation is that over time, uh, the price for suborbital flights will come down. And I think SpaceX and Starship could change that uh, very much. It could be very different in five or 10 years. So Elon Musk mentioned it in several interviews. He said, well, it cost me 2 million, 10 million, 1 million. He used different numbers to launch a Starship and we will do Earth to Earth. Actually, if you go to SpaceX website, Earth to Earth uh, section, that's mm -hmm. where they talk about those flights, suborbital flights, and uh, not suborbital, yeah, point-to-point uh, -point flights, 45 minutes, New York to Tokyo. And again, in his interviews, he was talking 500 people. I can put 500 people in the Starship to do this flight. Well, we'll see. It's it's a tough job to do that. Yeah. But um, I know uh, Department of Defense uh, in U.S. became really interested already because the opportunity to send 150 tons or uh, some load and people anywhere on the planet within 30 minutes, 40 minutes time is very attractive. And uh, maybe this will put some money into the project and it will happen sooner than later. On the Blue Origin side, uh, it's a tricky subject. Um, uh, the price uh, is um, somewhat sensitive commercial information. Uh, if anyone is interested to know the price for a Blue Origin suborbital flight, they can go to the Blue Origin uh, New Shepard website and there is a booking button, inquiry button, and you, you can check the price. We, we, we are not at liberty to tell all the rumors we hear, and especially if someone paid the price, we, we are tied by NDA agreements with the, with the operator. On, on the training uh, requirements, prerequisites, are there any limitations you, you know about? Who cannot become uh, a suborbital astronaut? Actually, I have not heard of anyone that's been uh, disqualified uh, for whatever reason. I think, you know, you know, anybody in generally good health, I mean, both systems are engineered and designed to, to be, uh, you know, manageable for anyone. Um, in the centrifuge training, you know, for example, when we're up to three and a half Gs, actually, we went up to five Gs because actually experienced some higher Gs on the way down as you re-enter the atmosphere. Uh, but they come at a peak, they don't sustain so much and, and they build up over a period of time and then drop right back off. Uh, they are, I would say so comfortable, but definitely manageable, that G-load. I think you have to be in rather poor health in order to be uh, disqualified or, or so, not. And the youngest person was 18 and the oldest person was 90 something. 90, yeah. Blue and, uh, yeah. And uh, let's see, John Goodwin, who just flew on Galactic and Wally Funk were both right around age 80. Mm -hmm. um, Wally Funk flew on the first uh, Blue Origin flight with uh, Jeff Bezos. And one more topic which people want to know more is um, safety measures, um, redundancies. Well, both uh, systems are basically space space systems. And as any space system is designed, it's always designed with multiple redundancies. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you, through your preparation, through your training, any safety features you can talk about? Yeah, we're aware of some. I know, I know the Galactic uh, has 
a, a lot of, like you say, redundancies or you know, multiple systems in, 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 that are in critical you know, functions. Um, Blue Origin has, uh, and we saw this in, on the, when Blue Origin ha, had their last payload flight in September 2022, um, they had a failure in the rocket and their backup system, which is a solid rocket motor that's in the capsule, pulled the capsule away from the booster uh, and came back down under parachutes. If there had been people on that flight, uh, they would have been fine. So they actually, that was not the first time they've used that solid rocket motor uh, and they've tested it on the ground in flight at peak altitude and it's worked uh, well each time. So that was actually uh, reassuring to see uh, I'm very unfortunate that that they had a, a failure in the rocket booster, um, but very good to see that the backup system performed as it was designed. So, yes, and yes, there is a risk. You know, you're riding a rocket; it's it's speeding you at a very high speed uh, through the atmosphere. But in this case, uh, I think all of us that are signed up and are ready to fly uh, feel like the the reward is very much worth the risk. Well, what about you on the day of the flight? Will you be freaking out a bit, or I tend to to, to be pretty calm <laughs> in in situations. I, I I don't mind. I'm happy at heights. I'm happy looking over cliff edges or anything. You know, totally comfortable with that. Um, we'll see. But um, I would look. I would. I've actually talked to a medical researcher to see if you know we could wear a medical harness. You know, if there's some um, if there's some uh, science experiments we could we could do with this, or at least have our bodies wired so that uh, you know vitals uh, can be monitored during the flight and help create um, you, you know uh, you know a, a database of of performance. And uh, I'd like to do that. So and I've talked to Blue Origin about that, and uh, they have had I think they have had people that have, that have worn some kind of you know system that's monitoring monitoring. Uh, blood pressure, heart rate, things like that. The last question, um, you mentioned the projects which you are uh, doing with high school, with students, I assume high school students, university students. Uh, any any age really, middle uh, from first, you know, first, second year uh, up through university mm -hmm. and, and to adults as well. Why are you doing this? Like, I, uh, it's, um, I, I would do the same, I'm doing the same. I'm promoting this idea because I'm passionate about it. I just wanted to hear your opinion. Do you, do you believe that this is a wise decision for, for students, for, for young uh, adults to follow the STEM, STEAM career in space, engineering? Maybe they should all go to do IT, AI, legal, I don't know, accountants. What's so cool mm. about engineering or art or math or science? Why, why it will help them? What's ahead? Ed? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, part of the purpose for, for talking to students and, make, and making them aware of, of commercial spaceflight is all those jobs that you mentioned are available, connected to spaceflight. Um, students, you know, well, there's a few reasons. There's there's reasons that I think you know people in general should should be aware of Earth as a planet. They don't realize that Earth spinning a thousand miles an hour at the equator and traveling sixty seven thousand miles an hour in its orbit around the sun. And you don't really have to have a sense of that for your day-to-day -day needs. You need food, water, sleep. 
But in the long run, for human, as humans, as a species to survive, you have to have awareness of Earth. You don't realize that the thickness of the atmosphere is about the equivalent of a paperclip on a 12-inch globe or like a skin on an apple. The atmosphere around the Earth is extremely thin, and you don't realize that from the ground. You look up at the sky, and the clouds look like they go on forever. But when you're in space and you see that thin atmosphere and realize that it's keeping everything alive within it, you come back with a different approach to life and uh, to thinking. And I think more and more people realize how our Earth exists in space is is long term better for the Earth, and and that's really why. Uh, what, what drives my passion to talk to students about space and students are, you know, generally curiosity. There's, you know, if, if you talk to most students and say, Oh, Hey, you know, you get to talk to an astronaut today. That's an exciting thing. And, uh, love to fuel that curiosity. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of what we touched on one of the important messages we have for students is that if you're excited about space and want to work for a space company, you can't, you, you, yes, they need pilots and engineers, but they also have people that work in their office offices in general office jobs, uh, people doing uh, law, there's, you know, commercial space law is, you know, an active area. Uh, there's people that have that uh, have maybe just like a two year trade degree that love working with their hands, building things that are going to be building spaceships out of carbon fiber, you know, like companies are building carbon fiber bikes and other things. Um, there are people that are connected to IT, managing the data. They're photographers, graphic artists. Um, there are people in the hospitality industry that are, you know, creating food and breakfasts at Spaceport. There's there's a full-time barista at Spaceport, uh, Joe. He's fabulous. And his job is to make coffee and other drinks for people that are building and operating spaceships and for people going to space. So you could, you know, students, you could be involved in many different areas uh, with both companies. And if, if you're interested in space and want to be connected to space, uh, you can do it. And the best advice, really, if you want to do it, is follow your passion. Find something you're really good at. Be ready to work hard at being really good at it. And uh, you never know where you can go. I don't think any of us signed up for Blue or for Galactic would have guessed 15 years ago that we'd be doing what we're doing now. So that's uh, some thoughts for students. All parents who are listening, please go grab your kids and force them to listen to this whole bit again because it's, it's <laughs> wonderful. It's wonderful. Ron, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I, I, wish you, I wish you all the best in your future flights, uh, how many you are going to do, two, three, five, 25. And I, we'll I, I hope that then you'll be wearing your jumpsuit, spacesuit, and touring all those universities and schools, and your power will be enormous in luring people into oh. the STEAM and uh, STEM education and showing oh. them the bright future. This is great stuff. I, I really like oh. that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's a very exciting time. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out and uh, really appreciate uh, being part uh, of your podcast series. Best of luck. Thank well, you. But once you become famous, please come back to our season three uh, with a summary of what you saw. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, let's, no, sure. let's agree now because yeah. you have to commit that you'll come back to this I, podcast. I expect, I, absolutely. I expect to be very busy once, once, uh, once I come back. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Ron. Great talking to you. 
Thank you for listening and watching. This was episode 5, Suborbital Commercial Space Flights. You can find these episodes on YouTube and on all audio podcast platforms. Thank you and goodbye.